Hello, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. (laughs) How's it going? (laughs) Good. Not too bad. Um, You're back at work, having had like a week off. Yeah, just a week. (laughs) And they've dragged me back. Apparently, uh, the the new content writer has like had a few, like... By her own admission, had a few meltdowns and uh, and is is uh, yeah struggling. She's really new and like it's a really busy period. So it's probably the worst time for her to come in. But like yeah, I mean it's good to know that other people are doing the same thing that I did when I was working there. Like We're I having had a meltdown. many meltdowns, <laughs> many meltdowns. I like I slammed my laptop shut and I like, left that like flat so many times. But like thinking that was really dramatic, but obviously it's not because now and then you do it. Like all that happens is like after about ten minutes. Like your status goes to away on Teams. That's it. That's that's the impact. Or you could just set it to away. Yeah, <laughs> good. But it's just so like, oh, he's away. That's no, it. When, uh, at my old job, when um, one of my members of staff was having a meltdown, she actually just logged off Teams like yeah. halfway through a conversation. Should do that. That's good. She's that's actually good she actually left now. Really. Yeah, That's what I should have done. Bit psychotic. <laughs> no, but she wasn't like you. She wasn't getting pressure. Yeah. She was just like, oh, anyway, it doesn't matter. I start my new job on Monday. Ooh, so that's why I went to Westfield today. I was just telling Dan, everyone, that I went to Westfield today. And not like everything is open. Nothing is open. The only things that are open are like boots, um, Marks and Spencers, and Dorit Smith's, which I didn't know until the other week when I went there. So I went to buy a new notebook. Because when you start a new job, it's yeah. like mandatory that you buy a new <laughs> notebook. So yeah, I went there and I got also a sketchbook because I've been doing a course at the National Gallery, um, 1600 to 1700s art. So I decided to, I don't, those of you who have done GCSE and A-level art, you'll understand what I mean when you like put a sketchbook together and you put all your art history mm. in it and you like cut up pictures. And, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. So I've got like little stickers. I'll show you, Dan. Or maybe I'll post a picture. This is you my should. front cover. Oh, very nice. Yeah. It's got some Vermeer, some Caravaggio, some Rachel Reich, um, Rubens. Yeah, you got Rembrandt. Yeah, Bernini. And it's it's been like so eye-opening because the things that I've learned about have been... Obviously... I'd be like standing in front of a picture in a gallery and I'd be like, oh, that's really nice. I really like this bit. I really like that bit. But what I didn't know was like really what all the little things represented, like Mm. how like a snuffed out candle would represent like the brevity of life or how like this picture with all these flowers, all the flowers will be from like different times, like bloomage, because nowadays you can buy like Mm -hmm. just in Sainsbury's. But all different flowers would be from like different times yeah. of bloomage, so artists would like press them so they could use them in still lifes later on in the year. Oh, so it'd be cool. like a whole year's worth of flowers yeah. in like one vase. Or how like um what's the other thing that was just fascinating? And how like patrons really dictated what they painted up to a point like especially in rome with like the catholicism yeah they would be like i want this saint doing this in front of this with this person looking to the left like 
really dictated oh, what wow. they painted. So they had like a real kind of like clear view of what they wanted. Yeah, but then when it came to like Holland after like their you know break from mm-hmm. Catholicism, that opened up a whole new world of like painting and then selling. Yeah. So oh, it was so different between like Rome and Holland. Would they be like kind of like uh, like church officials who were like commissioning those pieces? Yeah, rather, it rather would just be. like a, a I don't know like a, a wealthy individual. No, it'd be like cardinals yeah. or yeah, or even the Pope in some circumstances. But then, like in Holland, it was totally different. Like they could paint on spec and then sell them to dealers. Mm-hmm. And how Vermeer was, he was a dealer as well as a painter so in his paintings you can see other people's paintings in his own paint like behind and i just like really want to go to the national gallery and look around the the, like 1600s to 1700s kind of part of it Uh just to be like now i know about this and i know like what all the stuff behind this painting like for example when we went to the van gogh museum we went to the bit with the sunflowers and there's like loads of different sunflower paintings that he did and now i realize that that's probably because he wanted to sell them because more than one makes more than one amount of money so like in terms of like caravaggio he did like a whole load of paintings that were like the same painting like 50 of them but like we would only see one in our lifetime yeah yeah Anyway, it's a really interesting course, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of them, but obviously, like, you know, some will remain. Um, Obviously, there's a big time and period. There's, like, periods in history when stuff, it was destroyed. In terms of the 1600s, you've got... World War II. um, Well, you've got the Civil War, Mm. first Mm. of all, when Oliver Cromwell decided that, like, Catholic drawings were, like the bane of his existence because charles the first was like a massive collector him and his wife henrietta were like huge collectors so the stuff they had was amazing and that all got like sold off but it doesn't mean that it's been destroyed it just like got sold off and then obviously world war ii with the nazis like Mm. the stuff that's just been lost forever yeah Anyway, that's my ramble about my course, <laughs> which I'm really enjoying. Those Puritans, they didn't like art at all, really. Just none of it. No. No Christmas, no theatre, no music, none of it. Yeah. This is why <laughs> I, I could never be... I always have this like, debate, like, would you be like a, 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 a cavalier or a roundhead? And although, like, I mean, like, I don't agree with, like, an absolutist, like, monarch, but, I mean, for, for, for like, the reasons... I just yeah, I, I, w- I would end up just fighting for the Cavaliers. Like, so it's like you're gonna take away all fun. Okay, I guess I'm just gonna have to fight for the king. Then. And they have long hair, and you have long hair. So yeah, that's, that's true. Like... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I can only grow like a little wispy, like shit moustache, and like a tiny bit of beard on my chin. So that kind of works for a cavalier. Yeah. In a um, way. Though <laughs> being Asian, you wouldn't be in either one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be unwanted. Oh. <laughs> You'd just be like a circus, like... Freak. Like, freak, yeah. Just in like a little box. Just like, look at the man from the east. Uh, Why don't you tell me about your person? I will tell you about my person. (laughs) You will? (laughs) Okay, I I don't think you would have heard this one, about this one. Uh, There's kind of like a bunch of people like around this time I could have done. And I I picked this guy 
Uh, one, because I think he kind of like connects all these other like really big figures uh, from this kind of like uh, era, from this kind of like uh, like subject together quite nicely. And also because he he's like the uh, founder of a, an organization that um, that just has a very cool name. It's been just kind of like stolen by like, I'm sure it's been like a band name or a title of like a metal album it must have been it's just like been okay. printed on t-shirts and stuff but anyway so yeah let's get into it have you ever heard of benjamin bugsy siegel no i haven't so he was an american mobster he was a uh, instrumental in the development of the jewish mob uh the las vegas strip the National Crime Syndicate and an organization known as Murder Inc. Murder oh, I know Murder Inc. Obviously, yeah. I know Murder Inc. It's, so this is fifties, right? Nineteen uh, no, nineteen twenties to 1940s. Oh, 20s. So yeah, you're so going back pro- to like Bugsy Malone, Flapper. Yeah. So like this is like a he's like instrumental basically in like the creation of like the modern mob, like how it went like the transition from like street gangs fighting over like street corners to like yeah big business like Mm -hmm. fronts like uh yeah yeah ways of like laundering money that sort of stuff yeah this is exactly like the what i imagine bugs are name being yeah but not with children (laughs) and yeah he's he's an interesting guy i think he's a good good one super basically he's he's quite clearly like a sociopath and a psychopath so this is gonna be it's gonna be lovely nice love it i i love it just lay it on me so seagull was born on the 28th of february uh, 1906 in what is now the lovely gentrified and hipster neighborhood of williamsburg brooklyn new york oh lovely so back then lovely now (laughs) not so not so much (laughs) That was a, it was a bit grim. Uh, so he was born to Jenny, formerly. Uh, oh no, I should have tried to learn this this name before I started. Uh, Reichenthal uh, and Max Siegel, who were uh, poor Jewish immigrants from the Galatian region of what was then known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So like nice. now, it kind of like fits between, I think, Ukraine and Poland and somewhere else. So it's that kind of Okay, yeah, that area. Yeah. So he was the second of uh, five children, and his parents constantly worked with just very, very meagre wages. So that meant his family was basically constantly impoverished and often hungry. Um, So yeah, I mean, like, the failure of the system seems to be a common denominator in, like, these mobster stories. Hmm. Yeah, it does, actually. Uh, So he didn't finish school. Instead, he left to join a gang on Lafayette Street uh, in... Uh, on the lower east side of Manhattan. Uh, so, kind of like talking a street gang here rather than what's typically known as like, uh, we see like as organized crime today. So, uh, uh, so not like it's trying to be because it's just like kind of like little bit of theft here and there. So, um, yeah, so like he would grow into a much more powerful figure in organized crime. Uh, but here, I mean, it's, it's just his humble beginnings, really. So he's often yep. been described as like uh, handsome and charismatic. Um, he became one as of they the often f- are. yeah. I mean, he became one of the first like front page celebrity gangsters, uh, like in the vein of like the later John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to that episode, uh, so he was. I mean, like if you see pictures of him, like he is like a pretty handsome uh, mofo. I mean, he's, he's got those like <laughs> he's got those like thirties, forties movie star good looks. Nice, yeah, you know, like um. Uh, what's his name? Like a Kerry Grant sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, Kerry yeah. Grant or, yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, but on the street is where he started. So at first, as a teenager, he mainly committed uh, thefts. Uh, this was until he la- uh, met long-term partner Mo Sedway. So together, they developed a crude protection racket in which he threatened to incinerate Pushcart's uh, Pushcart owners' merchandise unless they paid him a dollar. So that would wow. be like Is pretty unsophisticated, but I mean, or did he just do it a lot? <laughs> I think he was just going. Yeah, it was like I don't. Know, I think I'm guessing it was like a. I'm going to set fire to your stuff right now unless you give me a dollar. And yeah, like, of course. Not, not like in a week. Yeah, like, you, yeah. you don't know, you might know, you're like, because that would be a bit more sophisticated. You don't know what's going to happen, but I mean, like, your one, like, your merchandise will be burnt at some point. You'd be like, oh, man, where's it? He'd, I think he was just going, I'm going to burn it now. And then, like, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. have a dollar. Um, so things started to ramp up after he met and befriended, uh, whilst in his teenage years, the future notorious crimes are and a major crime boss, one day founder of the National Crime Syndicate, Maya Lansky. Mm. So, when Lansky was a young teenager, he had run into another then little-known adolescent called uh, Charles Lucky Luciano. So Luciano tried to extort uh, Lansky for protection money on his walk home from school, uh, but the young Lansky had refused, uh, which you'd think would earn him a pummeling. However... It seems uh, the young Luciano respected the young boy's defiant responses to his threats and the two instead became firm friends and formed a, a partnership that would last uh, a lifetime would propel the, the two of them to the forefront of American organised crime. Um, wow. But that would, be for, that would be for for many years yet. So, uh, so at this time, there was no Jewish mob to speak of. Um, so it was seeing Luciano's activities with the already uh, existent Italian-American mafia that persuaded Lansky the need to organise the poor Jewish boys of his uh, Brooklyn neighbourhood in the same manner as the Italians and the Irish. And his uh, his first yeah. his first recruit to his gang was Siegel. Ah, okay. So this is where Siegel comes into yeah. play. So... Despite still being in his teenagers, Siegel had a reputation of having a violent temper. So he was a man that could just flip in a moment, or a boy in this case at this point, just a teenage child. Um, so, uh, in fact, this is where he got his name Bugsy uh, from. So it's reported that fellow gangs nicknamed uh, Siegel Bugsy in reference to his notorious, uh, quick and violent temp- temper. As in, he was as crazy as a bed bug. <laughs> I don't know if oh, I've ever heard okay. that, but that's weird. Bug, is this um, the guy that the Bugsy Malone is named yeah, after? Yeah, maybe. I mean, it doesn't make that's... much sense because Bugsy Malone is like a nice guy. Yeah, maybe but, it's like an um, inversion or something. I don't know. Or maybe it's just the name. It just happens to be. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a name that he hated. He always hated the name. So he would always want people to call him Ben or Benjamin, and like so, Bugsy was very much like a name used behind his back. <clears throat> but it was it was because of his temper that Siegel was cast as the heavy and designated the hitman when uh, he and Lansky together formed the Bugs and Mayer mob. So, at first, the two mainly engaged in illegal gambling operations, uh, making money through uh, debt. So you'd kind of like. I think the main way that like gangs like make money in this way is you kind of like get people into like high roller game, like high rollers into like um very like kind of high stakes game games, <clears throat> get them to kind of like borrow money off like the house, and then they owe the house tons of money, and then you send Seagull around to 
to, to progressively injure them more and more until they give the, <laughs> you your money, <laughs> or kill kill you if you if you can't pay away with exorbitant kind of like uh, um, interest. Yes. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, the other thing they also engaged in was car theft. So uh, stealing luxury Classic. vehicles and selling them through fences. Through fences. Yeah, like a like a fence. Somebody like sells sells like sells oh, uh, stolen goods. <laughs> sorry, I had like a, the idea of a garden fence. Just like yeah, just like do you want to buy a car? Through a fence. <laughs> <laughs> this is the garden where you get all the stolen goods. Front garden. So not literally, but yeah, I get what you mean. Wow, the um, English language is fun, isn't it? It is very strange. So at this time, the United States was in the grip of prohibition hysteria. Oh <clears> yes, it is. Which really achieved nothing more than diverting eye-watering amounts of cash to organise crime and corrupt politicians, because that's what prohibition does. Make so all those drugs that, legal. <laughs> well, those of you that don't know what the prohibition was, it was a time in America where they banned all alcohol, yeah. which just made alcohol more desirable. And more and expensive. More expensive. And just like, why would you do that? That was it's really silly. Insane. It didn't work at all. And we'll but get... We'll get into yeah. that a bit more. <laughs> it's a fun, it's a fun it's, period of history. It though. is, yeah. It, it created all of this, so <laughs> which is fun to study. Um, so yeah, I mean, crime was big business at this time, and of course, Bugs and Maya wanted in. So the two joined with uh, Jewish mob boss and kingpin Arnold Rothstein. So I don't want to talk too much about him just yet because I, I he will get his own episode because I'm I'm a bit in love with him like he's just fascinating. <laughs> I always um, find those I'm like I'm a bit <laughs> in love with this historical figure. But in essence, Rothstein uh, was the first to see crime in terms of a criminal enterprise uh, run like a business rather than just small time street crime. Uh, he managed to ingratiate himself with corrupt politicians, ran and fixed sports gambling, owned race courses, and bribed sports teams. So essentially. Rothstein was like the godfather of modern criminal enterprise. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll go into some details because like, there's some su- such good stuff about him. Uh, so basically, Siegel and Lasky became his protégés. Um, although it was widely known that Rothstein was a mobster, he wanted to remain somewhat apart from the going on, goings on on the street, kind of want to maintain that illusion of being a businessman. So he had Siegel and Lasky run uh, his bootleg operations in New York and New Jersey. Um, these were sophisticated operations that involved smuggling liquor from Canada and even shipping huge quantities of high-quality Scotch whiskey from Scotland across the Atlantic uh, to New York. Uh, oh, so, nice. like, a huge operation. Like, using, like, ships that you've kind of, like, chartered, to, uh, like, owned, possibly, I think. I mean, um, yeah, it was a pretty huge operation. Um so it also shows that the people who would be drinking this stuff were rich. I mean, Prohibition was basically, like, when it was enacted, <clears throat> a policy that targeted the poor and working class, uh, you know, those who actually needed a, an escape from their miserable lives. Um, but I mean, like, the working class, the poor, they're always seen as immoral, immoral and incapable of control. So I mean, like, it was an in- a terribly, like, unfair policy. Um, and I mean, like, ironically, it was those who enforced this law, the ones who enforced the ban, who could afford to splash out on the illegal drinks. So... <laughs> a double layer of shit there (laughs) Uh, and through this Seagull was doing well by the age of 21 he was making money and flaunted it he bought an apartment at uh, 
the Waldorf Astoria Hotel and a Tudor home in Scarsdale, New York. So it's pretty big money. Yeah. He wore flashy clothes and participated in New York City nightlife as well. Um, da, 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 da. But to keep the separation running, to keep the money flowing, the gang and Siegel especially also dealt in murder. Murder. <laughs> murder most horrid. So sometimes murder was just part of like the routine hijacking of like liquor cargoes or whatever, taking out rival uh, outfits. You'd ambush some trucks, the outloading of unloading of some ships at port, you know. The foot soldiers, they're gonna get gunned down. This it's standard. Pretty standard. Pretty um, standard. They also made themselves indispensable indispensable by handling the high profile hits required by the various gangs operating throughout the period as well. So an hour short fused Seagull was frequently the trigger man. Um so he's suspected of being responsible for the killing and the removal of several rival gangland figures and leaders. Um, so one such figure was Joe Masseria. So he was the boss, like the, the main boss of the Giannese, uh crime family. So this is like one of the five families, one of the five major families or like criminal organizations uh, dominate organized uh, crim- criminal activity in New York City and New Jersey as part of the American Mafia, like to this day. So, like, this is like, oh, a big okay. deal. Wow. Um, so, Masseria had been caught up in the Castellamari's uh, war against uh, another mob boss called Maranza- Maranzano. Uh, so, he was like the, the Brooklyn based uh, rival family, the Bonanno crime family. So, that's another of the of the main five families. So this time, uh, Charles Lucky Luciano was a lieutenant of Masiera. Um, so he was part of the, very much part of the Genovese uh, crime family all the time. However, he kind of saw this war as an opportunity to advance himself. So he did a secret deal with Marizano, in which Lucky Luciano agreed to engineer the death of his boss, Masiera, in return for receiving Masiera's rackets and... As part of the deal, also becoming Maranzano's second in command in the Bonanno crime family. So he managed to, like, promote himself, raise himself up through the ranks. Yeah, but he had to, like, murder someone. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, you always have to murder it's all someone. Part of the, it's all part of the... <laughs> <laughs> um, so on, April, on the 15th of April, 1931, Luciano lured Masiera to a meeting at a restaurant called Nuva Villa Tomorrow on Coney Island. They were joined there by Albert Anastasia, Vito um, Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. So, this was supposed to be like a sit-down or a make-up meeting. The participants were supposed to be an even split between those two factions. So, half from the Masiera faction and half who were kind of loyal to Luciano. So, Anastasia and Donis were supposed to be there for Masiera. They were his lieutenants, so they're kind of like quite high up in the organisation. Unfortunately for Masiera, both Anastasia and Adonis had been bought and had flipped their loyalty to Luciano. Uh-oh. Um, so, while the men convivially played some cards, uh, Luciano, not wanting to be implicated in the murder of his boss, excused himself to the bathroom. So, I mean, like, naturally, what happened next is unknown. I mean... It's a crime. And it's also kind of like an et tu brute, brutus kind of like situation. So some reports state that Masiera was gunned down by all four men. So, I mean, like, they're all responsible. responsible. No one can, like, get done for the crime. Like a murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, yeah. 
kind of thing. Sorry, spoilers for the murder of the Orient <laughs> Express. However, the New York Times uh, stated that the police have been unable to learn def- definitely what happened. Reputedly, Massiere was seated at a table playing cards with two or three unknown men when he was fired upon, uh, ah, fired upon from behind. He died from gunshot wounds to his head, back and chest. Massiera's autopsy report shows that he died on an empty stomach. No witnesses came forward, though two or three men were observed leaving the restaurant and getting into a stolen car. No one was convicted in Massiera's case, and there were no witnesses, and Luciano had an alibi. He was in the bathroom. <laughs> Do you mean, like, That's, isn't the greatest... How is that an alibi? It's not a great alibi, but, I mean, I guess people in the... I guess people in the restaurant probably, like, saw him going to the, like bathroom but then they were like we didn't see who killed killed him yeah okay well i don't know um so it's kind of possible the seagull got up got up and done the deed from behind since he was a such a high profile hit man and this would be by no means have been his first hit uh but i guess we'll never know i mean but anyway what happened (laughs) whatever happened seagull clearly took it all in his stride uh legend has it that uh Chiro, the artichoke king, uh, Terravona, uh, was supposed to be the uh, driving the getaway vehicle, but was too shaken up by the killing to drive away. So he had to be shoved out of the driver's seat by Seagull, who uh, drove the car away cool as a fucking cucumber. <laughs> Why are <laughs> cucumbers cool? Like, I know. I mean, I they're mean, chilled, like... but a lot of things live in the fridge. Yeah, I know. It could be like so, anything. I don't know. Just because it's alliterative, I suppose. Yeah. And maybe it's kind of a, I guess it's like a cool flavour. Well, you I guess you put them on your eyes, cool? don't you? Like that is true. To like cool yourself, cool them down. So maybe that's why I don't know. From. Someone let us know where that comes from. A spa if, thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, a spa thing. Uh, I don't like a cucumber though. <laughs> so anyway. Luciano was brought in for questioning by the police. Uh, at this time, the police suspected a gangster named John Silk Stockings. Uh, Silk stockings, uh, Guistra, <laughs> Guistra, uh, as being uh, one of the gunmen in Messier's murder. So they were kind of like, looking for this guy. Uh, this was based on a report uh, of a confident uh, on the report by a confidential informant, and um, da, 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 da. and then one of the coats found at the murder scene was also identified as belonging to uh, Guistra. Um, but the case was dropped after uh, Gistra was murdered on the 9th of July, 1931. Suspicious. So, I mean, if he's had information, like, it's not inconceivable that he was murdered by the same group that killed the boss. Probably Seagull mm. himself as well. I mean, like... So he's like and... Seagull's like the Irishman in this kind of case. He's doing, like, all the murders. Yeah, yeah. I don't know he's if you've like... seen the Irishman, but... He's like a, um, yeah, like the cleaner. He was yeah, like, that's, yeah. That's essentially where he was like, hired, like, well, not hired to the gang because he's like the joint leader, but like that was his role. And it was one mm-hmm. I think, I mean, like as a boss, like it's not something you need to do. It, it just seems like he quite enjoyed it. <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, like whether or not Siegel had been the gunman in this, uh, in this, uh, in this case, Boxy was never one to hesitate before cheating a truck, uh, putting the trigger. So, Another member in the Bugs and Mayor mob recalled that Seagull was fearless and saved his friends' lives uh, multiple times while they were kind of like engaged in their bootlegging opportunity uh, work. Um, so Bugsy, according to 
According to Jake Joseph Doc Stratcher, uh, Bugsy never hesitated when danger threatened. While we tried to figure out what the best move was, Bugsy was already shooting. When it came to action, there was no one better. I've never known a man who had more guts. I mean, are we going to call it guts? Guts are like low regard for human life. I mean, like it's one of the two, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, he was already shooting. What a gutsy move. <laughs> It's just a yeah, it's a bit weird name. Uh, bit, yeah, a bit of a weird but word. I mean, I mean, like, uh, like the mob is like it's the height, the height of like toxic masculinity. So, like, bit of killing, some violence. That is, that's the height, isn't it, of uh, what they respect, I suppose. <laughs> um, so, Nugiano had orchestrated the death of his former boss Masiero in order to jump up the ranks and become the rival boss Maranzano's second in command. Well. By September of that same year, a mere five months later, Luciano had already tired of being second and decided he wanted to be number one. And so he orchestrated the death of Maranzano too. Okay. I mean, and didn't didn't Maranzano like see this coming? I think there's things like there's loads of kind of like detail behind this. Like I'm, I'll probably have to do Luciano at some point because like his little like plots are like crazy and like there's a lot of kind of like. He starts plotting, the other, like, boss, like, gets wind of it, and then, like, they're trying to, like, arrange their, like, kind of, like, assassination plots, like, be- like before, the like, the other one can. So that was, like, another, like, situation like this. But, I mean, literally... I you, got... Like, oh, who sorry. wants to be boss when you know that at some point you're going to get whacked? Like, what? it doesn't make sense. Like, that's what doesn't make sense to me about, like... The exactly like, <laughs> so, like i'd hate it like watching like sopranos at the moment you're just like what is the point like you're just constantly yeah. like looking over your shoulders like you don't trust anyone you don't trust your friends like they're all people you've grown up with well just like i said suddenly... in the irishman it's the yeah. same deal and you just like, yeah oh it's mad madness uh but of course Luciano's going to win out because he's got Siegel on his side. The number one hitman in New York and New Jersey. The premier go-to guy for all <laughs> things murder. For all so. things whacking someone off. <laughs> whacking someone off? That Not whacking great. someone off. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's something else. <laughs> for whacking um, someone. Uh, so what has, been come to, has come to be known as one of the most brazen murders uh, of a crime boss in all of history... Four of the Bugs and Mayor mob, including Siegel, disguised themselves as government agents to gain entrance to the Maranzano uh, gang's New York office. So, like, in their territory, just in their, like, in their headquarters. Just all up in their office. Yeah. So, two of the gangsters disarmed Maranzano's bodyguards uh, as soon as they gained access. Uh, the four then proceeded to stab the boss multiple times before shooting him dead. Shooting him dead. So I just, I love that phrase. It's the funniest <laughs> phrase. Like, shooting someone dead. Like, it's, it's just funny. Because there's this, there's this joke that's like, how do you get a ghost to lie down? And the real answer is, use a spirit level. Yeah. But when my mum told this, I think it was her um, reception class or something... Yeah. One of the kids said, shoot him dead. And ever since then, I just remember that when someone says shoot. I know it's not funny that he's yeah. dead, but it's a funny phrase. Anyway, continue. Phrase, anyway. He is dead. Um, so this murder 
established Luciano's rise to the top of the mafia, marking the beginning of the modern American organized crime. So following this, Luciano and Lansky formed the National Crime Syndicate, which is just a cool name. (laughs) (laughs) So this sought to promote more cooperation between the different mafia families and the various ethnic mobs. This included establishing a commission for dividing mafia territories and preventing future gang wars. So cooperation and essentially corporatization for greater financial returns. I mean, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, it's capitalism, baby. It's capitalism taken to its <laughs> logical conclusion. <laughs> Mod mobtical conclusion. <laughs> so, along with the National Crime Syndicate, Siegel formed Murder Inc. Uh-oh. So Murder Incorporated essentially acted as the enforcement arm of the Italian American Mafia and the Jewish mob and other closely connected uh, organised crime groups. Mainly in New York City, but elsewhere too. So as a premier hitman, it's no surprise that Siegel would be instrumental in the formation of such a group. So the group was composed of Jewish American gangsters and Italian American gangsters, and the members were mainly recruited from poor and working class neighbourhoods in Manhattan and from the Brooklyn neighbourhoods of Brownsville, East New York and Ocean Hill. So basically like feeding on the poor and dispossessed, those with very little money and even fewer opportunities. Um, In what is a particularly dark irony, Murder Inc., um, that was obviously in the business of murder. I mean, it's in the the title, (laughs) of course, was headquartered out of uh, Rosie uh, Gold's candy store at the corner of Saratoga and Livonia Avenue in Brooklyn. So they are, they are doing, they are dealing out death from a kid's candy store. Nice. Lovely stuff. Um, so Murder Inc. Uh, Hitman used a wide variety of weapons, including ice picks to murder their victims. The group... Like um, Trotsky. Oh, yeah. Who's oh, yeah, killed Trotsky, an ice pick, yeah. right? Yeah. He did. I mean, I'm not saying that they killed Trotsky. That's <laughs> not... I'm it's saying Because that is like 40 years later. But, um... It's normally like... The only thing I want to use it is like eye, ear, or base of the skull. Blah. Through the, oh like, yeah, because you spy. wouldn't be able to like. Oh, anyway, yeah. why ice picks? Like it's not massively cold it's... in <laughs> New York. It's, Is such there, a, yeah, like, it's a weird thing to pick. Do they have they, like, like a stash, like a freezer in the back of the candy store? I guess they use it to like break up the ice for like drinks. So it's kind of like a. Oh, maybe yeah. It's like a, a common like instrument from like the twenties. Uh, right. Anyway, so. The group committed hundreds, if not thousands, of contract killings from 1929 to 1941. So we're talking about like, like numbers rank from like the like the late hundreds, like 800 to like 5,000. Wow, like I guess years. we'll never know how many there yeah. are. They probably didn't oh, yeah. keep very good records. I, I reckon it's got to be like, it's, yeah, it's got to be like a ridiculous amount, really. Um, and everyone knows Medering. Like it's like, yeah. It's just so, a name that everybody knows. They they made it so like <laughs> precise. It's like one of the best named yeah. things ever. Like, you know what? How about just murder ink? Like, let's just not sugarcoat it. I can remember like in the nineties there were like t shirts I like had it on like everywhere. Yes. During that I new metal that. period of Yes, I remember that. Morals. You're right. I think there also probably is a band as well, isn't yeah. there? Yeah, I'm sure there is. Or like at least an album. Yeah, or a song at least. 
Um, so how did how is this organization uh, organization run? So I think like the main takeaway here is that the the, the, the killers were salaried. They were on a constant <laughs> salary. Nice. <laughs> it's run like a proper company. Being a paid regular salary as a retainer on top of receiving an average fee of between $1,000 and $5,000 per killing. Wow, that is good. Maybe fam- I should go into murder. <laughs> <laughs> Their families also received monetary benefits. So they're getting like benefits, like employment benefits. Like, this is quite... Well, like health insurance. I mean like... Dental. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's a free gym. Gym <laughs> I mean, membership. I mean, you can see why some young men were drawn into this. I mean, like, you're destitute, you have no hope in something you're being offered, like a regular like a regular salary, like a high salary, plus a $5,000 bonus for doing your job. I mean, yeah. like, in less than the 20s, like, or 30s. Like, I'm not condoning it, but I mean, like, you can see how, like, when a system is failing people that badly, like it was in, like, 1930s America, like, this is like that, like the height of the depression. Like yeah, why people absolutely. can like, get caught up in this sort of thing. It's pretty mad. Also, if the girls were caught, the mob would hire the best lawyers for their defence. So we're never left out to dry. Um, Siegel also killed to protect the organisation. I mean, like, that's understandable. That's, that's protecting himself as well, obviously. I mean, like, yeah. if the organisation goes down, he goes down. So, following the death of Rochdeen... Uh, there was a power struggle over who would inherit parts of the uh, parts of his va- his vast criminal empire. So one of uh, Rothstein's like uh, senior associates was Waxy Gordon. So to get him out of the way, Lansky and Siegel provided the authorities uh, with inf- uh, information about Gordon's tax evasion, which led to Gordon's imprisonment in 1933. It's always the tax. It's always. That's what they always they all, get. That's the how they on. get you. Everyone pay always your taxes tax. because pe- they will find you. Oh, they will get. They will. They the tax will definitely find you. It's either you. taxes or <laughs> pu- or like driving violations. <laughs> yeah. Like Ted Bundy. That's how they get. He was you. like driving a bit weird. <laughs> they never would have found him if that wasn't for that. So, but nowadays there's a lot of CCTV. So yeah, this is true. <laughs> slightly different. <laughs> So, in return, Waxy hired the Fabrizio brothers to kill Siegel and Lansky. This attempt failed. Uh, so this is... It's not what you want to really want to do, is it? You don't want to make an attempt on a famed assassin's life and then fail at it. It's just not a good idea. No. Because now Siegel set out for revenge. He hunted down the brothers and killed them. Unfortunately, I can't find details on the murders. I'm sure it was... I love that. Unfortunately, I cannot tell you the gruesome <laughs> details of these horrible murders. But, but like, that's actually what I want to hear. So <laughs> Dan knows me well. So after the deaths of his two brothers, the third remaining brother, Tony Fabrizio, began writing a memoir. One of the longest chapters was to be a section on the nationwide Kill for Hire squad led by Siegel, Murder Inc. However, the mob discovered Fabrizio's plans before he could execute them. In 1932, there was another attempt on Siegel's life. A bomb was lowered down the chimney. So Siegel was struck on the head by a piece of wood or brick, likely from... So the bomb was likely kind of like placed there by Tony, knowing that he was now on Murder, Inc.'s kill list. So after this, Siegel was taken by ambulance to the nearby Governor Hotel on South Street uh, in New York, and he was given where he was given emergency treatment for his injury, injuries. 
This injury would prove fortuitous. After checking into the hospital, Siegel was uh, snuck out the side door by his uh, by his men and driven to a house on Fort Hamilton Parkway in South Brooklyn, uh, where Tony uh, Tabrizio was staying with his father. So him. Siegel and two accomplices, posing as detectives, tricked him into coming out. He was greeted with three gunshots. And so the bombing and the expose, expose uh, were avenged. Um, after this, Siegel immediately returned to hospital, regained his room without being seen, and thus established a perfect alibi. He was in hospital. That is he actually can't have really done good alibi, everyone. It's pretty good. Especially nowadays when you have to go through, like... Oh, my God. I've, I went into hospital, like recently don't worry i'm fine um uh to drop something off actually and you have to go through the like temperature detector and then you have to be given a sticker saying that you've like answered the questionnaire oh yeah so if you ever need an alibi i really think you should (laughs) use the hospital seriously (laughs) the problem is there's lots of nurses walking around and well we're going to say anyway so despite all his murders, up until this point, Siegel's only conviction was in Miami. So he'd been down there on like a little kind of bit of business. On February, on 28th of February 1932, he was arrested for gambling and vagrancy. So sleeping on the street. And, what? <laughs> and from Why? a roll of bills, he just paid his £100 fine. Just on the spot. Went, fuck, there you go. I'm out of here. Um, but... but, 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 but the heat started to rise now. So the killing of Fabrizio, not to mention the bomb, plus the hospital alibi soon becoming questionable. So obviously someone had noticed they had left, uh, meant that his enemies now wanted him dead. And so Siegel decided to flee the East Coast for California, where there was less heat, or more heat in terms of weather, like this is a nice place to go. Um, yeah, it's, it's a hot. good place to escape to. Like if you're having to run away from New York, like California's a... Pretty it's the opposite side of the country, <laughs> literally. Uh, so, Murder Inc., Siegel's brainchild, was ceded to Buchalta and Anastasia, who had helped Luciano kill uh, his former boss. Um, so, yeah, paid him off. Paid those guys off with control of Murder Inc. and all of the lovely money that was making. And so Siegel River arrived in California around 1933 and was tasked with developing... Syndicate-sanctioned gambling rackets with the uh, Los Angeles family boss Jack Dragner. So, although Dragner was a boss of a, of another Italian um, American mafia, so like a high-ranking like leader of like a main family, knowing Siegel's reputation for violence and that he was backed by uh, that Siegel was backed by Lansky and Luciano, um, Dragner accepted a subordinate role. So, like he worked underneath Siegel, which is quite a big thing. Um, especially for like the Italian mob. So very soon, Siegel took over Los Angeles, um, like, like all of Los Angeles, I rackets and used the money uh, from the syndicate to help establish a drugs trade uh, from Mexico. So all that, prob- all those problems that you see happening, like going on now, set up by Siegel. Yeah, thanks, Siegel. Well done. <laughs> so by 1942, <laughs> Siegel's operations were making five hundred thousand dollars a day. What a in day. 1942 money? In 19, I love that in 1942 money. <laughs> um, that is a lot of money. 
That's but I guess he's paying money. all these salaries out. But you said that yeah, Murder Inc. finished in 41, right? Uh, I would have got well, passed on just to like... Um... The date. Oh, yeah, it did finish in 41. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But under someone else's control. Right, so he'd okay, been yeah. like... By 1942, he'd been like in, in California for like 10 years. So like in 10 okay. years, he managed to like get get like operations running to like this level. Um, so as part of these operations, Siegel controlled several offshore casinos. I'm guessing those are just like casinos in tankers. <laughs> and a little bit more darkly a major prostitution ring um, oh that's nice thanks for that <laughs> uh, he also maintained relationships with politicians businessmen attorneys accountants and lobbyists who all fronted for him so money was passed through that that's how he managed to like get away with the whole tax thing that mm. sinks so many mob bosses um and so the wealthy and sharp Siegel started living the high life. In Hollywood, Siegel was welcomed into the higher circles and befriended movie stars. He was known to associate with George Raft, Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, and Cary Grant, as well as Oh, there he is, Cary Grant. Cary Grant, he figures. The handsome <clears throat> Cary Grant. As well as studio executives Louis B. Meyer, Jack L. Warner, and actress Jean Harlow, um, was also the godmother to his daughter. Wow, so, that's weird. <laughs> proper high life. Siegel bought real estate through lavish parties at his Beverly Hills home. Uh, he gained admiration from young celebrities, including Tony Curtis, Phil Silvers, and of course, Frank Sinatra. He's always with the mob of Frank Sinatra. Yeah, I, I, he was in I'm the not mob, sure I trust so. Frank Sinatra. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so Siegel had several relationships with prominent women at this time, including socialite Countess Dorothy DeFresco. So this is a crazy story. Um, so the alliance with like, the Countess took Siegel to Italy in 1938, where he met and tried to sell weapons and explosives to Benito Mussolini. <laughs> what? <laughs> I know. Also, weapons? I've got weapons. She need weapons? Like, also, I mean, I like remembering he's like a member of like the Jewish mob. Uh, he met Nazi leaders Hermann Göring and Joseph Goebbels as well. Yeah, but if crazy. if he was like you know a big crime guy, I think they'd probably overlook it. Oh, yeah, that's true. Really, but I mean, like, like to be honest, he took an instant like dislike to the two of them, and and later to offer I mean, to kill fair. them. I mean, that's fair. That's a really fair <laughs> duo yeah. of people to take an instant dislike to. I mean, he's such a good killer. Like, I don't know why someone didn't take yeah. him up on that offer. Yeah, definitely kill If only, if only he managed to. Why don't you kill just them. while you're there? <laughs> but he only relented. He only didn't kill them because of the countess's anxious pleas. <sighs> Bloody fascists! Oh my god, nice women! <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, he played. Hollywood like he would anyone else. So Siegel worked with the syndicate to form illegal rackets, such as a, a plan to extort movie studios by taking over local trade unions and staging strikes to force the studios to pay him So um, before like the, the unions would start work again. So like typical like mob stuff, but with the added glam of like movies and Hollywood. <laughs> uh, Siegel, Siegel also borrowed money from celebrities and just didn't pay them back, knowing that they would never ask him for the money. I mean, like he's a he's a famous killer. Like if they're not, okay, movie star's not going to be like, yeah, can I have my? So basically, like during his first year in Hollywood, he received no uh, no less than four hundred thousand dollars in uh, loans from movie stars that he had no intention of paying back. <laughs> 
Big dollar. Um, so despite uh, elevation to the high life, Siegel still couldn't get away from his first love, that sweet, sweet murdering. So on the 22nd of November, 1939, Siegel, along with uh, Whitey Krakoa, Frankie Carbo, and Albert Tannenbaum killed Harry Big Greeny Greenberg outside his apartment. Outside, like, his own apartment. Um, so Greenberg had foolishly threatened to become a police informant. Well, that's just not something you announce. Like, why would you be shouting that out in the street? So yeah. now things got a bit complicated when Tannenbaum was caught and agreed to testify against Siegel for a lighter sentence. To get killing, to get off killing an informant, the killer t- decided to turn informant. So full of ironies, this story. Um, so Siegel was implicated in the murder and in September 1941 was put on trial. A trial Uh-oh. soon gained notoriety because of the preferential treatment Siegel received in jail. He refused to eat prison food. He was allowed female visitors and was granted leave for dental visits, which are like clearly meetings with his gangs. Like if you watch like Sopranos, <laughs> like they always just visit. meet in like this doctor's office. So yeah, that's obviously what he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> So Siegel hired attorney Jenny, uh, Jerry uh, Geisler, Geisler? Geisler uh, for his defence. was like a famous uh, celebrity um, attorney at that time. Uh, during the trial, the two newspapers revealed the Siegel's past and referred to him as a, as Bugsy. So as I said before, Siegel hated this nickname um, and preferred to be called like Ben or Mr. Siegel. So that annoyed him quite a lot. <clears throat> so... After the death of two state witnesses, no doubt ordered by Siegel, no additional witnesses came forward. Tenenbaum's testimony was dismissed, and in 1942, Siegel was acquitted due to insufficient evidence. Of course he was. You think there's going to be any evidence? Of course there's no evidence. However, Siegel's reputation was now damaged. Mm. Yeah, irreparably in California. And so Siegel fled again, this time down to Las Vegas. That's where everyone goes. That's where you get lost, isn't it? It's not really down, it's like across. Yeah. Kind of diagonal. <laughs> anyway. So, on the strip, here is where Siegel tried to reinvent his image and move into legitimate business in a partnership with William R. Wilkerson through the Flamingo Hotel. So Wilkinson wasn't a mobster. Rather, he was the founder of The Hollywood Reporter, which is still going today. A real estate uh, developer in Las Vegas and owner of such nightclubs as Cairo's. Everyone knows Cairo's, right? That's his club. (laughs) I don't know but I don't uh, know clubs, so... I think it still exists. Or it was like, I know from... Is it Cairo's with a K? Uh, No, the C. Like, it's like the big... Egyptian one, I think. Oh, okay. That makes sense. However, in May 1946, Siegel decided that the agreement with Wilkinson had to be altered. Basically, Siegel wanted full control over the Flamingo Hotel. Wilkinson was eventually coerced into selling all stakes in the Flamingo under threat of death and went into hiding in Paris for a time. I mean, like, you just don't... If you're not in the mob, don't go into business with someone from the mob. It's yeah, that idea. is a very good point. <laughs> you just... You don't have the same leverage at your disposal. No. <laughs> from this point on, 
The Flamingo became Syndicate Run. So, the, with the Flamingo, Seagull plans to supply the gambling, the best liquor and food, and the biggest entertainers at reasonable prices. So, you believe that these attractions could lure not only high rollers, but thousands of just kind of regular vacationers, like willing to gamble like $50, $100, whatever. Lots of the little build up to a fortune, baby. So this is like modern Las Vegas. Like before that, yeah, I think it was it just was. like high rollers. But he was like, his vision was to just get you can just, norms. You can play on the machines and just like, yeah. like quarters. Getting the normies, that's where the money is. <laughs> so to get his hotel ready, uh, Siegel began a spending spree. He demanded the finest building that money could buy at the time. So this is like a time of like post-war shortages, but still. He was going all out. As cost soared, his check started to bounce. By, 19, by October uh, 1946, the Flamingo's costs were above 4 million. By 1947, the costs were over 6 million. So that's the equivalent of like 61 million in like 2019 money. Wow. Which is just ridiculous. So yeah, it's 10 times. So all the like sums that we've like, like, uh, gone over so far, times out by 10. Yeah. Um, However, by late November that year, work was nearly finished, and so maybe, maybe it would be a success after all. Well, according to according to later reports by local observers, Siegel's maniacal chest puffing set the pattern for several generations of notable casino moguls. His violent reputation didn't help his situation, really. After he boasted one day that he'd personally killed some men, Siegel saw the panicked look in the face of his head contractor, Dale Webb. To this, he reassured him, oh, don't worry, we only kill each other. <laughs> that is true, it's though. It is true, it is mainly just... Murdering, Those exactly. Uh, so, other associates portrayed Siegel in a different aspect. They said he was kind of like an incense character who was not without his charitable side, including his donations to uh, Damon Runyon's cancer fund. Um... Lou Weiner Jr., another, I think... Oh, no. Oh. But, yeah, Lou Weiner Jr., Siegel's like Las Vegas attorney, described him as very well-liked and said that he was good to people. It's a weird anomaly that you see about, uh, like frequently about mob bosses. So you're like, always described as like really nice. But I guess it's main, they're mainly described as really nice by like other people in or connected to the mob. So Yeah, that is true. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it's probably not a, an accurate description. Um, <clears throat> so around this time money issues related to Flamingo seem to have started to bleed into his mob activities in California Siegel just refused to report business like back to back to the syndicate he later announced out to his colleagues and superiors that he was running the California syndicate by himself and they would return the lines in his own good time so that's kind of like those are war words despite Siegel's defiance to the mob bosses, they were kind of patient with him uh, for the time because he'd always been proven like a valuable man in the past. But the patience couldn't last forever. The Flamingo opened on the 26th of December 1946, at which time only the casino, the lounge, the theatre and the restaurant were finished. Although locals attended, few of his old celebrity friends materialised for, uh, for the grand opening. Though a few did drive down from Los Angeles, they were welcomed by construction noise and a lobby still draped with the drop cloths. Hardly the height of luxury that Siegel had hoped for. But Siegel desperately needed that money to pay pay up to the syndicate. And so he was desperate. 
The air conditioning system broke down regularly, which is pretty critical for the desert. While gambling oh, yes. tables, <laughs> oh, <laughs> while the game ta- tables were operating, the luxury rooms uh, uh, were supposed to serve and lure the uh, the high rollers to stay were not ready. So as words, a word of the losses made their way to Siegel during the evening. He began to become irate and verbally abusive to anyone around him. After two weeks, the Flamengo's gambling tables were two hundred and seventy-five thousand in the red. So like two over two million in the red in today's money. And the entire operation shut down in late January nineteen forty seven. So this time around the Flamingo had been a colossal failure mm. and Siegel couldn't pay his debts back to his bosses and the syndicate. I mean, the Flamingo would get a second chance. Siegel knuckled down and did everything, everything possible to turn the Flamingo into a success. He renovated, got some good press through his old work and no doubt through a little bit of leaning as well. Um, he even hired future newsman Hank Greenspun, which is such a funny name. Greenspun, spinning that news, uh, as a as a <laughs> publicist. Um, the hotel re- reopened a few months later on the uh, 1st of March 1947 with Lansky present, his old buddy, his old boss, and began turning a profit. However, by the time... The profits start uh, start coming uh, starts coming in. Mob bosses above Seagull were tired tired of waiting for their money, and basically, it was over for him. Yeah, it was coming. So, on the night of June, the twentieth of June, nineteen forty-seven, a Seagull sat with his associate Alan Smiley in his Beverly Hills home, reading the Los Angeles Times. An unknown assailant fired at him through the window with a 30 caliber military M1 carbine, hitting him, hitting him multiple times, including twice in the head. No one would ever be charged with the killing, and the crime remains officially unsolved. Wow. However, I mean, it was just... It was someone from the mob who... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's widely it's believed that Siegel's death was a result of his excessive spending and possible, th- uh, possible theft of money from the mob. Like, undoubtedly, that's what was happening. Like, all his own money was going into, like, this hotel. So he was definitely, like, skimming in order to kind of, like, keep himself in, like, that lavish lifestyle that he uh, had become, like, accustomed to. Yeah. So the theory goes that in 1936, a meeting was held uh, with the board of directors of the syndicate in Havana, Cuba. Uh, It was done so, like, Luciano, who'd been exiled uh, in Sicily, could attend and participate. Like, at this time, Luciano was, like, no longer welcome in. America. It's because he spent his entire life there, but like he'd been born in Sicily, so he was exiled back there. But he was still running the American mob from like Italy. <laughs> um, so a contract to Seagull's life uh, was basically the, the conclusion of that meeting, is, is what said. Uh, according to Stature, his old friend and business partner, Lansky, reluctantly, reluctantly agreed to the decision to kill his old friend. Now, Siegel is memorized at the synagogue in uh, New York's uh, Lower East Side. Um, a plaque was placed below that of uh, Max Siegel, his father, who died just two months before his son. On the property of the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas, between the pool and the wedding chapel, is a memorial plaque to Siegel, the hotel that he built. But Siegel himself is interned in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Hollywood, California. And there is the life and death Oh. Notorious mobster. He was only 41. Seagull, yeah. He lived fast, died young. Wow. Um, did he have children? You said he had a daughter. He did. He had a couple of daughters with uh, his wife. So 
he married kind of like his childhood sweetheart, but um, like in 90, the 1930s. But yeah, he was like a, a complete womanizer. So like, oh yeah, marriage like broke down in like 1942, I think, or something. And then she moved back to New York and left him to left him to live the cavort in, yeah. in California. Um. Okay, that was a long one. So really quick, I have a couple of recommendations. Oh, go for it. One of them is Murder Among the Mormons on Netflix. It's a ah. three three episode try a true crime story which is partly about murder but partly about um about historical document um what's the word like trading and selling Um, and it's really interesting and like so much i didn't know about historical documents especially mormon historical documents um that's interesting so that's one the mormons are quite interesting recommendation (laughs) um and the other one is a book called um dangerous women which i just finished there's a blog on myhistoryblog.com and it's by hope adams and it's about it's a historical fiction about the women who were on the transport ship the raja and a murder, a fictional murder that happened, but the the Raja was a real ship. So, yeah, interesting couple of history-based uh, things. Good recommendations there. Mm. I would recommend uh, The Liberator, uh, which is a, a World War II drama-y, action-y thing. But it's kind of like done in the uh, style of like a Scanner Darkly. Like oh, the, okay, like yeah, that kind thing. of animation, yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. Recommend that. Awesome. Um, and I recommend that you subscribe to our podcast and give us five stars if you enjoyed yourself here. If you want to, no pressure. Oh, and leave us a little review if you want. Leave a name yeah. and we'll give you a little shout out. Yeah, do leave your name on Twitter. Um, or if you're a podcast yourself, please do let us know if you've listened and we will return the favour. And uh, follow us on the social media as he thinks. Uh, at Hollywood <laughs> Pod. And see you next time. Bye. Bye.